Hey, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Uh, I am going to be teaching uh, also, in addition to everything else that's happening, on Tuesday nights, I'll be teaching a leadership class. So uh, if you want to join me in that, that starts not this week, but the following week. Uh, registration is online. It's on the app. If you don't have the app yet, please uh, download that. It has all the information, Bible studies and all that, web page, social media. We're on all those things. If you don't have your Bible, raise your hand. One of these guys will gladly hand you one. And um, <clears throat> uh, turn to Mark chapter 9. So we've been in this uh, gospel now for a few months. We're going to continue for uh, till Advent. So we're already planning Christmas and Christmas Eve. I know that's hard for some of you to believe, but we got to get ahead of the game on that. We've got Trunk or Treat coming up. So we're going to be looking for more people for that. It's a big event that we do. Uh, which is uh, wonderful, and so we're planning for that for you. And we got a few other things we're going to announce, uh, but we're, we're trying our best to just hone in on what we're doing well. Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about greatness. So let me start our message this morning by asking you, what would you or how would you define what great is? What is it to be great? I think back when I was a kid, and I know probably in my youth, I, I had images in my mind of what I thought greatness was. And I know some of this is going to, uh, as I share some of this with you about who I am, I'm putting myself out there, but, you know, I, I grew up in a non-Christian home like many of you probably did. Yeah, Ooh, are we celebrating that? Way to go! You did it. Okay, so anyways, my idea of greatness as a young child started when my father and I went down to make sure that uh, the video we wanted at All the Best Video was available on VHS, and we did, and I remember that VHS as we brought it home. It was the movie Commando. Don't remember that one? The star was Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's right. Shortly after that, we rented Predator. I was sold. Me and Arnold, we're going to be one. That's greatness. I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong, terribly wrong. Uh, all of us, I think, at some point, I would hope, uh, would desire or have had a desire to, to do great things. I'm actually reading a book right now. I, I'm reading in part for my own heart, but I'm also reading it for the state of our church, uh, just knowing the, the average age. So typically uh, in a church, the lead guy represents kind of the medium age. So typically in a church, if you're healthy, like we are, it kind of goes beyond that. But most likely, uh, usually the church will be 10 years above and 10 years below the uh, age of the pastor. So I'm 44. So that means most of you are somewhere between 44 and 54 or 44 and 34. And if you're above that, you're outside of what would be considered normal. Congratulations. God is gracious. You're still here. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, a, in spite of Jesse, the old people are here clap. Okay, we'll go with it. And um, I'm reading this, the whole premise of this book is, is essentially that, that the first 40 years of somebody's life in America is typically the only 40 years that we live for. What they essentially say is the first 40 years or so, we are gathering our identity, we're figuring out who we are, what we're good at, what we're not good at. And the, what the book argues is that around 40 
to 50 that we kind of stop living. We've spent the last 40 years putting things in the storage container. That's the picture that he paints. You know, 40 years of identity, put that in the storage container. He says somewhere around, again, 40 to 50 years of age, we look at the container and we're happy with the container and we just kind of sit on our our tail end and, and just enjoy all the hard work we've done and we waste really the second half of our life. Uh, the book is actually meant to encourage those of us in faith to live for the next 40 years. So here I am at 44, uh, you know, I'm now the lead guy, if you will, the lead pastor. I've, I've done a lot of the, the, the hard work in the last 40 years. It'd be easy for me just to operate uh, out of my strengths, if you will. But the premise of the book is you really shouldn't. You need to start giving things away. That you've lived in the container, you've accumulated inside that container. Now it's time to take all those goods and resources in the container and give them away so the next 40 years are actually the most impactful. The good news uh, that the book argues, if you are of my age and older, that your best, most impactful, most important years are ahead of you, not behind you. Uh, that's a huge encouragement for me. And here we see in this particular passage... What does actually make someone great? If you're going to make the next 40 years, if you're like me, what makes it great? If you're younger than 40, what do you got to do up until 40 to be great? What are you going to do with your life? How are you going to accomplish your goals? Are you going to have a meaningful life? Or are you going to have a life that really doesn't carry a whole lot of weight to it? Do you influence people for the positive or the negative? I have a line that I used to share with my uh, high school kids when I used to do youth ministry. It's now a line I use with my kids. And I ask my kids this every now and then, do you want to be a thermometer? Do you remember this, Courtney? Or do you want to be a thermostat? Right? A thermometer tells you the temperature in a room, but the thermostat changes the temperature in the room. And so I would ask kids when they were in high school and in a public forum or being surrounded by teachers who were teaching them the wrong things, what do you want to be? You want to just tell everybody what the temperature is? Or do you want to be someone that influences change in the room? And so the, the encouragement there was, hey, be someone that changes the, the mood of a room, right? Change the, th the, the temperature. How do you do that? Well, on the heels of what the disciples have just experienced, this is really important. Remember, the three closest disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, had just traveled to the top of Mount Hermon, about a 9,000-foot journey, from below sea, sea level, it's actually more like 11,000 feet. So if they start at the very bottom, there's quite a hike. They get there. Jesus manifests himself into who he truly is. We see him transformed in his true nature. His holiness and his greatness are manifested to the disciples. As his greatness and that nature of who he is is exposed to them, then Elijah, Elijah and Moses show up and it's just this crazy event. The cloud of God's presence envelopes them. A voice from heaven speaks. This is my son. Listen to him, obey him, do what he tells you to do. Peter in his arrogance thinks the greatest thing that he could do is to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, putting them all on the same level. But Jesus will not have anything to do with that. He knows that true greatness is not actually on top of the mountain. It's actually down the mountain. So Jesus with his three disciples goes to the bottom of the mountain and in contrast of the glory of God, they now see the darkness of Satan below in the valley where a young boy is demon possessed. 
Now, while the disciples were on top of the mountain, the three, remember there's 12, nine others are down below. And the nine others are trying to cast out this demon in their own strength, in their own power. They have forgotten they need to rely on Jesus and prayer and spiritual things to do great things. They have forgotten what it takes to be great. And you have to be attached to Jesus. Now we pick up on the story where we're at this morning. The first segment, if you take a look there, is actually in chapter 9, verse 30 through 31. This is another passion passage. What do I mean by that? A passion passage is just a way for theologians to describe that what is being expressed here is Jesus' prediction of a death on the cross and a resurrection from the grave. That is a passion passage. Here he gives us a picture. And in verse 30, he tells us that after they passed from Galilee, he didn't want anyone to know. He was teaching the disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, for they were afraid to ask him. So there's this interjection. Now before we we dive into our actual section this morning, I want you to read those three verses, or, or think about those three verses in context of where we're about to go. What I think that Mark has done here is in the description of what is great, is that's what he's going to basically describe for us. What is great? What does it mean to be great? Jesus has given us a picture, an illustration, as a good teacher would, of what greatness looks like. And that picture of greatness that he describes is his death. And the disciples don't understand this. They're confused by it. In fact, they're afraid. They're afraid, uh, like many of us, they're afraid of the unknown. We don't know what this means. We don't know what this entails. They are not understanding. It is not clear. They're still grasping to try to understand who Jesus is. This is where we pick up now in verse 33. And I would invite you this morning, as we honor the word, would you stand with me as we read together? When they came... To Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last, last of all the servants. And he took a child, he put the child in the midst of them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will be by no means lose his reward. Impress upon us, Lord, your greatness now. In Jesus' name the church said, amen. Please be seated. So <clears throat> Jesus sits down and him sitting in this particular context is a way for us to see he is a rabbi, 
It is now time to be taught. And upon this teaching, as he sits down and he begins to instruct his disciples, he is aware of a conversation they've been having along the way. They have experienced some very supernatural events. Now this moment has come and Jesus says, hey, I, I know you were talking. What was it that you were talking about? And what's interesting in verse 34, upon the request of Jesus saying, what was the discussion about? Like children being caught in the middle of gossip, they're silent. We better not tell them what we were talking about because the reality is what we're talking about probably is uh, embarrassing. Because imagine, they're talking about greatness. They're asking, what is it to be great? And what has just occurred for us to understand why they're arguing and fighting, I think is important. Three of the disciples were where? They were on top of the mountain. They saw Jesus reveal. They saw Elijah. They just saw Moses, y'all. This is a big flipping deal. And on top of the mountain, Jesus says on the way down, what you just saw, do what with it? Tell nobody. So now imagine Peter, James, and John have just experienced a supernatural event. They are walking down the mountain. No doubt they are in just impressed and in awe, enamored with what they have just seen. I mean, clearly when one sees something amazing, one must speak of such amazing things. But they can't. So I'm just imagining as I'm reading the text and kind of reading in between the lines that as they're starting to make this journey back to the house, Peter, James, and John are probably here and the other nine who had just failed at casting out the demon are over here. And uh, I see Peter, James, and John kind of going, you know what we just saw, don't you? No, tell us. <laughs> Can't. <laughs> but man, I wish I could tell you. All I can tell you is this. I'm just imagining. It's got to be Peter. All I can imagine. Right? This is what they're thinking. This is what they're talking. Peter's going, yeah, I can't tell you, but all I know is I know we're better than you. <laughs> There's no doubt that we're better than you. I can't tell you why. I have evidence, but I can't tell you. All you got to know is pretty sure you're going to be serving me soon. And the other nine are probably going, well, you think you're better than us because you're on top of the mountain? They're arguing. And the reality is James tells us that we argue, we murder, we covet because we don't have. That's why we fight. It's the pride of life, if you will. And so the reality of what is happening here is that these men are filled with arrogance. They are filled with pride. They think because they've been on the mountain, they think because they've experienced these radical things and radical miracles on the mountain that somehow, some way, they're better than the other nine who haven't seen, touched, or heard what they've seen, touched, or heard. It's spiritual arrogance at its worst. Have you met these kind of Christians who think they're better than other Christians? Have you met them? See, some of you are afraid to admit it. But if you have been in church for any length of time, you probably have been wounded or injured by arrogant Christians who think they're holier than other Christians because of some other reason. They came from this church. They came from that denomination. They have this particular spiritual gift, whatever it might be. We're so good at thinking we're better than others. Yet... The Bible is replete with passage after passage 
that tells us that the requirement not only for salvation, but the requirement for greatness is humility. Everybody say it. Humility. Humility is not valued in America. It has never been valued. In fact, Aristotle said, pride is the crown of all virtues. In our day and age, it's all about self-worth, self-value. Have a little pride. That's the language that is communicated to us, right? In order for us to, to do great things, we've got to be on the top. We've got to be first. And because of our desire to want more, James would continue to say, this is why there is murder and arguments. It's your pride that's the issue. And the reality is, the first point of my message in regards to what is great, that's the title of the message this morning, Becoming Great. The first key that unlocks the door to greatness is humility. Do you know, again, one of the dangers in in I think the American church is attaching our, our faith to our politics or our political party. This is always a tricky thing for me to talk about because, because inevitably someone somewhere has attached the Bible and attached Jesus to their political party. Everybody thinks Jesus is on their side. And the reality is, right? Look at my kids. I tell my kids, all, this is a line I learned from my dad. So it's a dadism. I'm about to give you, I'm going to warn you. It's a dadism, right? Some of you will know this joke. And if you do, you're on the other side of, of the 40 age I talked about, right? My dad used to say, you can't lie, Jesse. Do you know where liars go? Washington. <laughs> so my dad taught me, don't trust what anybody says in political office. They're about themselves. They're about their own greatness. They're not about serving the people. See, what Jesus knows, what we need to know is that these disciples who are arguing about greatness, they believed the typical belief about the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to come with a political reign, and he was going to overthrow Nero, and he was going to overthrow Caesar, and he was going to overthrow Rome, and he was going to usher in the kingdom of God with warfare and might and judgment. But that's not the Messiah they got. They got a Messiah that dies. A, a death that he predicted, by the way. The whole time, he's trying to teach the disciples, if you're going to change the world, it's not the way that you think. If you're going to change the world, you've got to die to yourself and no longer think of yourself as number one. But you've got to put God first and you've got to put other people first. One author literally says that the gospel, what it does, what it actually does, is it frees us from our addiction to ourselves. That when we understand that greatness is not in getting, but in giving, we're letting go of self-feeding, self-giving, self-pride, self-worth, self-value. He goes on and says, before Christ redeems us and sets us free, we're like crack addicts addicted to ourselves. Everything we do revolves around ourselves. I like how Tim Keller talks about it. He says, hey, if you want to actually find out if you're prideful, when pride, proud people start to draw attention to themselves, he goes, this one way you know someone's proud, they, they're trying to draw attention to themselves. He goes on and says, uh, Keller says, the way you know this is the reality, body parts, when they're healthy, don't draw attention to themselves. Body parts only draw attention to themselves when something's broken. 
right? I don't see anybody here this morning, but I know we've had several people have some shoulder surgeries. And, and when you get a shoulder surgery, you know that when you come to church, you wear a sling. Even if you, the doctor says you don't need to wear one, you still wear one on Sundays. You know why? Because someone's going to punch you. Someone's going to hug you. Someone's going to squeeze you. And it's apparent to everybody something's wrong with that arm. The way that you know someone is unhealthy, they are just hungry for the attention to be on them. You know, all our celebrities, all the click bait, all the, all the number one pro, all that little, what's that blue little check mark? You know, you got to get the blue check mark because then you're official. You know what that blue check mark says? Next time you see it, I'm broken. And I need to get my worth from people who follow me and look at me. You know what the, Ameri- I've said this before, what the American church needs are pastors who are willing to serve their churches year after year and die in obscurity. Obscurity. Faithful, loving, consistent service to other people. Right? Those of you who, who, who know me, you know that I am naturally an introvert, which means I like to hide from y'all. <laughs> but I love you. Because God's put a heart of love in me, and I love Jesus. And so what God did in his sovereignty is he called me into the ministry and gave me a gift to preach and teach. But my job is to sit in the back of that office with no bells, no whistles, no applause, no thank yous, no pats on the back. It's just me (laughs) going, Lord Jesus, there's words in here. Help me put these words into something that means something. And I pray and I labor as an act of service to the church. I do not enjoy being the center of attention. I don't. I know some of you are like, no, okay, sure. I don't like it. I remember when my grandmother told me when I was a kid, she said, just like uh, Timothy and his grandma laid hands on Timothy and said, Timothy, you're going to be in ministry. My grandmother, I was about five years old. My grandmother said, Jesse, you're going to be our pastor one day. And at five, I just was like, okay. <laughs> right? And, and then as time went on, I ran from that calling. I remember when Pastor Wayne, who was the guy before me, moved in, and I was like, that's what a lead guy is? No offense to Wayne, but I was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and then I spent years, literally years, for, from the time of 16 to probably 21 years of age, just running from the Lord to not do ministry, to not serve, to not preach, to not teach. In fact, my first run of preaching was on a mission trip down in Mexico and I bombed so bad. I was on a 30-day trip. I bombed at preaching so bad on my first day that for the next 29 days, I delegated out all the preaching to other people. And I was like, I can't preach. I can't teach. I'm not called to do this. God, give it to somebody else. I'll lead, I'll delegate, but I don't have to do it. That's the kind of people that God ends up putting up front because they don't care for the applause. They're not swayed by human opinions. You see, I'm doing what I'm doing not only because I love you, but because I love Jesus. And I love Jesus more than I love you, enough to give you truth that's gonna rub against everything that you normally hear. Your pride, your arrogance, and your self-value are killing you. They're not making you great. We have to fight, number one, 
the addiction and desire for pride. Number two, we have to fight the addiction and desire for prominence and position. You know what's so crazy about Peter, James, and John here? They're the ones talking about greatness. What's even more silly, what what drives this even a little bit, even kind of like bigger to realize what a problem this is. Do you remember there's another individual that comes to Jesus on behalf of James and John? Do you remember who it is? It's their mom. And guess what mom does? Jesus. Can you make my son sit next to you in heaven? Anybody have a mom like that? So I just imagine Jesus is like, It's like coaching kids, you know, like soccer kids. Why is my kid not playing? Because they saw. <laughs> That's so funny. Then another illustration, right? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is a good teacher. He's not going to let the argument go by. So he says, okay, let's talk about it. You want to talk about it? No, you don't want to talk about it. Jesus is like, I'm going to talk about it anyway. But the way he talks about it is unique and it's beautiful and it's loving and it's gracious. This is how Jesus is. And so what he does is he's sitting as he takes a young child. Do you see it in the passage? He takes this young child and he brings the young child and he sits the child on his lap. And then he gives a lesson about this child. Now, what's interesting about what Jesus is doing is he's talking about prominence. He's talking about who shall be first and who shall be last. And you and I both know that that Jesus takes leadership and greatness and he turns it on its head. Most of the world sees it this way, right? President of the United States, most powerful man in the world. Jesus flips it upside down. The guy on the cross? No, he's the most powerful guy in the world. It's not the throne. It's, 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 it's dying to self. It's picking up your cross. That's what makes someone great. So what does he do? Another picture? Brings the child, sits him on his lap. Cultural context matters. In Jesus' day, oftentimes kids weren't even named. They weren't given a name until they were one. Because they died often. I think many of you who are ladies know the reality was true of women as well. And so in that culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, even today, women and children are not seen to be as valuable as men. In fact, children oftentimes in Jesus' day were seen as disposable. As the saying has been said, I'm sure my dad said it to me on multiple occasions, Jesse, you are to be seen and not heard. My dad at one point, well, I shouldn't say one point, multiple times he used to tell me, Jesse, go take some rusty razor blades and play in the middle of the street. <laughs> some of us had better parents than others, I guess. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying to the disciples, and if you're looking at the original language, not only in this place, but also in verse 38 on when he brings up the word child, he's actually likening the disciples to the children. What he's essentially doing is this. He's saying, if anybody wants to be great, if anybody wants to have influence, you have to be like the child on my lap. 
What Jesus is saying is power comes from insignificance. I dare anyone to argue with me because it's not there. That's why I personally am disgusted with a lot of the preachers that are on, on the internet. Click, but click, 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 click. Right? It's one of the worst things that, that has happened to the church is for you to be able to go online and compare all of these people with the local church. Do you know how unfair that is? I'm not Billy Graham. I'll never be Billy Graham. And you can pull up every message of his and you compare him to every message of mine. If you want, you can pull up Mark chapter nine, Jesse, Mark chapter nine, John Piper or anybody else. And guess what? They're gonna do a way better job than me. But God hasn't called all of us to be these professionals and he's called us to be faithful in the small things. What does Jesus literally say? If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with what? It's the small stuff. I remember uh, Joe Casey saying to me one time about a particular guy. You know, he was like, he knew this guy real well. And he said, you know, I know the one thing this guy needs to do to start being great. I was like, what's that? He goes, make his bed in the morning. I mean, he was making a confession that one of the things we needed to get back to in teaching young men was how to make your bed. I mean, you want to see a young man who doesn't understand the gospel, and I say young man because this happens all the time. I know I've been guilty of it. I'm sure, sure I'm still going to be guilty of it. Next time the church has a potluck, next time we're serving some tri-tip, next time we're doing some next door food, whatever it might be, take note of who eats first. Nine times out of 10, it's a young guy in his 20s. Right? And all the older guys who are like me, who are 44, are like, yeah, I remember that. Because we all were in our 20s at once. But as you get older and you enter that second half of life, you realize that greatness is accomplished by who you serve. And it's accomplished by not only who you serve, but how you serve. Is your attitude good? I remember working at that large church in San Diego I was a part of. I think at the time, like I mentioned before, about 8,000 people on a weekly basis coming in and out of that church. Auditorium sat around 3,000 people. Most of you, if you're wondering if you're in a mega church and you go, how big's the auditorium? It's 3,000 people. You know how I know that? Because the insurance changes after that. So most of your Christian auditoriums are around 3,000 people. Insurance, in case you knew. So I don't know why that matters to any of us here, but maybe we're gonna build a 3,000. <laughs> okay, we'll continue on, forget it. <laughs> So here we are, and we have multiple services. In the middle of the services, the lead pastor comes into the bathroom. I happen to be in there at the same time. After he's done doing all that he's doing, he washes his hands. Then he takes the next several minutes to pick up all of the tissues on the floor. Around the trash can, you know, people take that tissue, they throw it, it bounces out. And he sat there, he picked it all up. And then he took, he took some fresh ones and he went to the sinks. There's about 10 sinks down the line. And he wiped down every single sink all the way down. One particular day, I remember all the interns, which I was a part of, we were standing there and, and he was there and he, he, he just reached over. A bunch of interns there and, and we're hanging out and he uses a teaching moment. He takes the, a lamp right here and he rubs his finger on it. And, and he looks at it and there's dust on his finger 
And then he looks at the interns and he's like, somebody probably should take care of this. All those little things, the lead guy willing to pick up tissues. Why? Because he knew that all of his real power and all of his real significance came from what didn't happen at the pulpit, what happened during the week. The real power isn't just on the Sundays. It isn't just in the devotional time. It's how are you faithful with all those little things? And are you willing to shut your mouth and submit? The reason I ended up in the position I'm in wasn't because I wanted it. It was just because I kept showing up. I literally was the only one dumb enough to be like, I'll do it. (laughs) And here we are. Jesus is sharing with us verses 33 through 37. If you are going to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. You've got to be like this child. The word that's used here for service is diakonos. It means like a waiter, a washer of feet, a diaper changer, a table clearer. The greatest servants in our church, and I mean this, are the individuals who are next door right now. The greatest people in our church are the ones who understand, you know what? To change the world, I need to change diapers. To change the world, I got to minister to this young little kid. There's still some of you in this room that, that, that can say, hey, I remember when Bev Schnobrick taught me. How many of you are Bev Schnobrick uh, disciples? We've got Shannon in the back. Okay. She had a huge impact. There's two of you. Awesome. <laughs> There's more out there in the world, I promise. Jesus is saying with his child on his lap that effectively we're great when we treat those with no standing in the world and we serve them. Those who are children, those who are lepers, those who have disease, those who are mentally impaired, physically disabled, those who are aged, we, we when we serve them, Jesus says here, you receive an audience with my father. And there is a reward for you, he says in the passage. There is a reward for us when we humble ourselves and we choose to be small and we choose the the position of lower than. I love how Piper says it to young pastors. You know what he says? This is his words. Young, hip, cool pastor, do you ever dream that one day, okay, you're young, you're cool, you're hip. And he asks the question, do you ever dream this? Do you ever dream that one day your sermon would be read aloud and to help an old man die in peace? Do you hear that? This is another guy who's had huge influence on evangelical world. And and he says, listen, the goal of a faithful preacher is that one day his sermon would be read aloud to an old dying man in his hospital bed that he would be comforted as he goes to be received in the arms of his savior. You see, every single week I go back into that room in obscurity and I do everything I can to put together an okay sermon. You know that's what I'm capable of. I'm just putting it out there. I can go back there every week and I can give you an okay sermon. Every week I spend my Monday and my Tuesday and my Wednesday and a little bit of Thursday to polish it up. I spend four days to put this thing together. And it's okay. But then in faith, it's the Holy Spirit that makes it great. I can't make it great. I'm incapable of changing you. 
I can't, I mean, I'm hopeless with even parenting my own kids, let alone pastoring my own wife and leading a staff and all the other responsibilities that God has seen fit to give me. And there's a lot. I try not to think about it because I won't sleep. Take care of four kids. Help take care of a church. Make sure the staff is doing all right. I hope the community groups are doing well. Who's mad at me this week? Okay, need to pray for them. Got to pray for my enemies. Who likes me this week? All right, I can leave them alone for one more week and then I'll manage this other piece. And when it all comes down to it, I then come in faith, in humility, not as first, but hopefully like John the Baptist, I must decrease that he would increase. And Jesus is made great, not because I am great, but in fact, it works in that sense. He who's the humble, like the best sermons are little children who know how to share their faith. Right? Don't you just get blessed when your kids, when you see them ooze something nice and beautiful and spiritual? Like, like when my kids do it, I'm like, oh my gosh, hurry up. Let's preserve them before they die and they go to hell. <laughs> you know, like we gotta, we gotta hold on to this for as long as possible. They're loving each other. They're encouraging each other. You have to have the right focus. So, so there's the, the first point. I'm gonna make the next two points brief because of time. So I want you to see humility leads to greatness or another way to say point one would be pride, to say in the negative, pride leads to destroying greatness. If you want to be first, you'll destroy greatness. You'll destroy your impact. If you're looking for clicks and likes and YouTube videos, all those things will destroy kingdom, kingdom greatness. Now it gets, I think there's some great comedy in verse 38, because now we see greatness has unity, harmony. Greatness has humility and greatness has harmony. What do I mean by that? Look at the unity in verse 38. John said to them, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them. Now this is, I think, comical because again, remember they're arguing about who's great. Some have just seen the transfiguration. They've seen Jesus on the mountain. So they're arguing about great. What's great? What isn't great? Then John specifically says, hey, hey, hey. Jesus, we saw a group of guys. They're casting out demons and they're not part of our posse. And we tried to stop them. You know why this is interesting? Because they tried to stop this group of guys, which is interesting because recently they also tried to stop something else. They tried to stop the demon in the little boy. They were unsuccessful because they did it in their own strength and their own pride and their own arrogance and without prayer and dependence upon Jesus. Now they see somebody they don't know being successful with something they just failed at. So instead of rejoicing that the kingdom of God is growing, instead of rejoicing that Satan is being cast out of a, a, another individual, they instead go, we tried to stop him. Doesn't this just ooze with jealousy? What about the church across the street? What about the church across town? Are we better than them? Are we greater? And the answer is absolutely not. The answer is we rejoice wherever the kingdom grows. Let, let, let's go more Bible here so we make, sure, we make sure that it's God speaking in regards to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is important. Some of you will say, I follow Paul. Some of you will say, I follow Apollos. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? Just people. 
Yet the Lord assigned to each a particular gift. Apollos planted, I'm sorry, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither Apollos or, or Paul, you see what was happening in Corinth is that certain people were saying, well, I follow Apollos. Well, that's great, but I follow Paul. The same arguments occur in church. I'm a Calvinist. Well, I'm an Arminianist. And some of you are like, I don't know what that is. So you're like, man, I'm pre-mill. No, I'm post-mill. No, no, no. You got to be all mill. I would just be happy if we would just talk millennium. Right? We all, some of you are like, what is all mill, pre-mill? <laughs> Join the community group. Y'all get in the Bible. There's different views on these things. How we view our soteriology, even spiritual gifts. And Paul, Paul is saying, okay, listen, it's God who builds, y'all. Paul does his thing. Apollo does his thing. Piper does his thing. Each individual does their own stuff. Don't worry about it. Just rejoice that the kingdom of God is growing. Okay, don't believe me? Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Still not unified with your other brothers and sisters yet? There are things worth getting upset about, but much of them not. Philippians 1, 15. Again, Paul. Some indeed, he says, preach Christ from envy, and rivalry. Some are doing Christian stuff because they're envious and they have rivalry. He says, but, the, but there's others. They do it out of love. Notice it. Some do it with the wrong motive. Some do it with the right motive. That's what Philippians 1 says. The former, he says, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not for others, for themselves. They're not sincere, he says. Then verse 18, what then? Have you ever felt this way as a Christian? Whoa, there's so many denominations. There's Lutherans, there's Presbyterians, there's non-denominational, right? There's crazy people, there's conservative people, and there's more crazy people. There's a lot of crazy people in Christianity. And, and we go, where, where, what's the true church? What's the right church? Well, this is Paul's words. What then? What do we do with all this division? Well, if we have humility and we understand greatness, he goes, well, I rejoice, he says, I rejoice in this, that whether it's in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. You know what he says? He says, essentially what he's saying is, quit trying to figure out the motives of why people are doing the things they're doing and just rejoice that something good is being done. Rejoice that the gospel is being preached. <clears throat> I've been doing this long enough to tell you this is true. Would I ever encourage you to go to a Mormon church? No. Have I seen people get saved out of Mormon churches? Would I encourage you, recovering Catholics, to go back to Catholicism? No. Are there people who've gotten saved within the Catholic Church? Yes. Same with almost any other sect, any other denomination. And the reality is, is that at some point, when God is sovereign over all, he will eventually, hopefully, guide you to the place where you're going to be the most healthy and the most holistic. And for the purpose of this morning, the goal for your health, the goal for your joy is humility. It's humility and it's harmony. It's being unified with brothers and sisters even if you disagree with your brothers and sisters. Some of you don't like this about our church. We are diverse. I have my convictions. Some of you know my deep, deep convictions. Some of you know the stream in which I feel most comfortable swimming in regards to theology and to doctrine. And I enjoy swimming in that lane. I like it because I feel it's biblical. 
and I feel it keeps me grounded in the gospel. And it keeps me humble because there's enough talk about me as a sinner in that stream that drives me into understanding in my total depravity, I need Jesus. And then there's enough in there to see that Jesus values me and loves me. But there's still this emphasis of the Christ in the Bible. When I disappear, the word of God remains forever. This is what has to be here, right? And we rejoice in the reality that God brings together different people from different places into one room. And then we have to try to fight for love and all that. Because in that diversity, guess what I hear on a regular basis? (laughs) You're not political enough. You should be more political. I don't think you express the gospel enough. You're overemphasizing grace. You're becoming antinomian. <laughs> Some be like, what is that? Look it up. I want more eschatology. I want more exegesis. Less topical. More this, more that. We all have our opinions. Can we just rejoice in the reality that whether in pretense or in truth, Jesus Christ is preached? And then lastly, we close with the ultimate destruction of pride. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, he's not just talking to the little child, he's also talking of you. He's talking about disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him. And there's three lessons. A millstone around his neck. That's, not, that's the first lesson. The cut it, you should. If this is the case, he then goes on and says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So there's a lesson about cutting certain things out. There's a lesson about unquenchable fire at the end of verse 44. There's more cutting off of that which is sinful. And then lastly, in verse 50, there's a lesson of salt, preservation. Three lessons, but ultimately all three of these lessons hone in that if you're prideful, it leads to your ultimate destruction. It was the downfall of King Isaiah all the way to the downfall of Satan. Nothing will lead you further away from Jesus than pride. And I'll close with this statement with a few just words. Is it your righteousness, that which you do good, that sends you to heaven? And the answer is no. Is all of the things that you do bad send you to hell? The answer is technically no. What do I mean by that? What I mean in the world of diversity that we live in, being heterosexual doesn't send you to heaven. Being homosexual does not send you to hell. Being a liar doesn't send you to hell. Being prideful and arrogant sends you to hell. What sends someone to eternal destruction is a lack of humility. All of those sins that we see in the world are just man's attempt of saying, I don't need God, I can do it myself. What sends someone to hell is each person saying, I can do with my body whatever the heck I want. I'll sleep with who I want. I'll talk with who I want. I'll do whatever drugs I want. I'll drink whatever I want. I'll do whatever I want. Don't tell me what to do. I am autonomous and I am free of any rules or any confines. And Jesus would say, then you're, you're doomed. The only way to heaven is humility. I'm gonna make you Lord. I'm going to make you first. And I'm going to do it your way, even if it's uncomfortable. Because it's in service to others and in humility to others that makes us happy and accomplishes greatness. Do you own a business? Humble yourself and serve your employees, and I guarantee you your business will grow. You want to see greater things happen in your life? 
start washing feet. Talk less and do more. Because where there are many words, sin is not far behind. We're not about talking, we're about doing with humility. And it's being small and insignificant that makes us truly great. Amen? That's our encouragement. When we leave, go do the small thing and do it great. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for some rain. Thank you for the promise of of new uh, seasons coming, Lord, new things happening. Thank you for all of that. Pray that you would continue to strengthen us, that we would be great in your kingdom by being small, that we would serve, that we would put ourselves last and not first. And Lord, we trust you with this. We know we need your Holy Spirit to help us because we can't do it on our own. So Lord, give us the ability to serve well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close with this last song declaring that Christ is sufficient for us.